If you have a Bible with you, turn with me, if you will, to the book of Acts. We have made it to the very end of our study of the book of Acts. We're in chapter 28, and Lord willing, we're going to finish this morning. So we're going to be looking at verses 11 through the end of the chapter. So it's always encouraging. People are asking me, are you excited about finishing Acts? And I'm like, not really. I like to preach whether it's the first passage or the last passage in a book, in whatever book we're preaching, it's always a blessing, isn't it? But this is a milestone just to wrap up this particular book on church history, and hopefully you've enjoyed our study together, and if you've missed any sermons, which I'm sure you have, uh, they're all available on the website. You can go back in and fill in at any time. But this morning, the title for the sermon is The End of the Beginning. The end of the beginning, Acts chapter 28, verses 11 through the end of the chapter. Luke writes this, after three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprung up, and on the second day, we came to Puteoli. And we found brothers there and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And then we came into Rome. Paul was allowed to say, stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, brothers, though I had done nothing against our people, the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case." But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked you to see you and to speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what you yourselves, what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everyone, or that everywhere, it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he had said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. They have, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there. Two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Father, we're grateful this morning to dive into the end of Acts chapter 28. I pray that as we look and see how Paul did indeed arrive in Rome and how he continued to preach the gospel from the law and the prophets and how you've shown your rejection of the, church, the, the, Israel, um, the community of Israel as a whole and turn rather to the Gentiles with the gospel and how the gospel was preached by Paul in a way that was done with boldness and without hindrance, I pray that we would draw many conclusions from this book and that we would be encouraged by its ending and that we would continue as well to preach with all boldness and without hindrance. And so, God, we thank you for the time to dive in. Bless it today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, it was a dark day in London on November the 10th, 1942. Debris lay in piles along the streets after two years of relentless attacks by the World War II German bombers. All of the buildings were caked with dust and ash of those that had fallen. The church bells no longer rang in celebration. The city reserved them for warning citizens each time the enemy planes filled the skies. Still, the Brits stood strong against the menace of the Third Reich. For years, while the rest of Europe appeased the Nazis, England defied the demonic dictator from Germany and paid dearly for this resistance with the lives of many of their citizens. Lately, however, the news of the various battlefronts had become promising. The United States had finally joined the conflict and others began to rally against Germany. And despite the good news of recent victories and the addition of several allies, the fight for freedom still had a long way to go. The bombings continued and morale teetered on the brink of despair. And it was in the midst of this devastating situation that Winston Churchill declared, we mean to hold our own. I have not become the king's first prime minister in order to preside over the liquidation of the British Empire. His own determination became a symbol of British resolve during the darkest years of the war. Fearing fearing exhaustion and complacency, which was ever at risk to the greatly uh, weakened uh, weakened, uh, sentiment of his own countrymen, the British bulldog warned, now is not the end. It is not even the beginning of the end, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning. What did Churchill mean when he said it is now the end of the beginning? Well, let me show you a little slide that I made that might help you as we talk about the end of the beginning. It is the title of our message. And I would say Churchill, of course, is referring to that very point in time when a significant phase or milestone has been reached. But there is still much work to be done before the ultimate goal could be achieved. In other words, they were reaching the end of the beginning phases of the war. And now they would hold on, they would persevere, and they would see the liberation movement achieve its goal in freeing Europe from terror and from tyranny. And Churchill's words ring in our ears this morning as we come to the end of Luke's history of the first Christians. The early church started strong and then almost immediately became the target of systematic abuse. Even though many believers had been beaten and had faced various trials and were facing ongoing struggles, they had been nurtured by men like Peter and Barnabas and John and James and Stephen, and these godly men had devoted their lives to helping the church mature in a world-changing force. Persecution pushed the people of God out of Jerusalem to carry the good news throughout Judea and Samaria. Then God transformed an enemy of the church into an apostle who would make the greatest impact. And it was through Paul's ministry that the kingdom of God spanned the empire between Jerusalem and Rome. He had scored crucial victories in the war against evil, but the struggle had only begun. And so we notice again in the slide, we have the church moving from the very beginning, that would be Acts 2, to the very end, I would say that would be the rapture. And then you have the beginning of the church, the middle of the church, and the end of the church. And we're saying that Acts really wraps up with the first arrow, the end of the beginning. That's what we're looking at. It's the beginning of the church. It's the end of a milestone of the book of Acts. It's the end of Paul's life, as we'll see here at the end of our message today. And yet God's work would continue to go on. Paul had originally intended to use Rome as a launching pad for the western frontier where he hoped to continue the ministry that he had conducted in the east. But the Lord had different plans. The apostle had carried the gospel far and wide and the time had now come to carry it high and up the political ladder to the pinnacle of power where the good news might influence entire regions as rulers submitted to King Jesus. If Paul had arrived in Rome as a free man, like any other tourist or missionary, it may be that no politician with any kind of power would have given him an audience. 
But in God's providence and plan, because of the jealousy of the temple officials in Jerusalem and then the petty maneuvering of the rulers in Caesarea, Paul now had an audience with the emperor himself. And so as we come to a close of this incredible narrative, let me give you three headings that will frame our text for this morning. You see it there in your outline. We're going to look at number one, finally arriving in the long-desired destination of Rome. And then we'll see, secondly, faithfully addressing the Jews with the gospel from the Old Testament. And then we'll look at number three, fearlessly announcing a judgment passage to the people. Let's start off with number one this morning. Paul's finally arriving in the long-desired destination of Rome. And your first blank, if you are taking notes this morning, says, time to board a new ship. If you remember from Paul's voyage to Rome, they've been all through the area and had all kind of havoc, and then they were shipwrecked on Malta, where they stayed for three months. And then we read in verse 11, after three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. So Paul had seen God do some pretty amazing things, if you remember from a couple of weeks ago, while he was on Malta. It was there that Paul had been unaffected by a viper bite while throwing some sticks on the fire. And the islanders first thought that Paul was a murderer, and then they thought he was a god when he was completely unaffected by the snake bite. The Maltese people showed Paul and other travelers there unusual kindness. God used Paul to bring healing to the father of the chief man of the island. And the rest of the island who had had diseases also came to Paul and they were all cured. And after three months on the island, it was time to to continue their, their course for Rome. And the natives of Malta honored the travelers by bringing all the supplies that they would need for the rest of their journey. And so having finally put winter and the choppy seas behind them, Paul is about to finish his course towards Rome. He jumps on an Alexandrian ship, also headed in the same direction where he was going. And then it says in this verse that there were twin gods that were on the ship. These twin gods, if you look at the note, were Castor and Pollux. Pollux uh, on the ship's figurehead. These were the lauded twin sons of Zeus and Leda, according to Greek mythology. Supposedly, these patron gods brought good fortune to the mariners, and if their constellation, named the Gemini, was seen during the storm, it would be a good omen of good luck, be an omen of good luck. And so Luke might have put that in the text. You say, well, why did Luke mention that these two gods were on the figurehead of the Alexandrian ship. It might have just been as a, a significant contrast in the superstition from the people of Malta, Rome, Greece, and Egypt. You know, the, the contrast between what they're trusting in to the solid foundation of Christianity. I mean, as Christians, we don't believe in good luck charms, right? We don't believe in horoscopes or zodiac signs. We believe in the God who made heaven and earth. And we believe in the God who has all power and all wisdom and all dominion and all authority. And we believe in a God who has revealed himself to us through creation and through our conscience and through the cross of Jesus Christ. And we believe in a God that that predestines and that ordains and that works all things together for his glory and for our good. We believe that whether we are in the middle of a storm or stranded in a desert or Um, In in the midst of of a difficult situation, we know that God's presence and God's mercy and God's love are always right there with us and that he's bringing about his sovereign will, his sovereign plan in accordance with his sovereign design. Therefore, as Christians, we don't have to fret or to fear or to fall on our own wisdom or intellect or, or our own devices. We trust in the Lord and And the fact that he is our rock and our shelter and our strong tower. God is a refuge, Psalm 46 says, and our strength, a very present help in times of trouble. And so when it's time to continue our journey, God will be right there with you every step of the way. You don't need a patron God. You don't need a good luck charm. God's presence is with us to the very end. And we see that's what's happening here with Paul as he jumps on this boat for his final leg to 
Rome. And so let's look now at verses 12 through 14. It's time to continue their travel. And verses 12 through 14 says, Paul putting, putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Puteoli, and there we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and so we came to Rome. So here we read, the, the uh, geographical markers of their journey, faithfully traced out by Luke. They sailed from Malta to Syracuse, Sicily, and after three days, they headed to Regium, which is located on the toe of Italy. And after one day there, a south wind sprang up and drove them to Puteoli. Puteoli was a very important commercial seaport halfway between Regium and Rome. And even though they were still 150 miles from Rome, the end of verse 14 says, and so we came to Rome. And so I think what Luke is emphasizing here is that they're at the end of their voyage. And from these last 150 miles in, they're going to be on land. And so he said, basically, they're, they're just about there. And at Puteoli, Paul and his companions found some brothers, the verse says. And this is significant because it shows that the gospel had already spread from Rome to this Italian seaport. Most likely, a church had been planted in Rome by some Roman Jews who had become Christians, maybe even the ones who had gone to Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and they had heard Peter's sermon, and they had been born again, and they had returned to Rome with the good news. In fact, Acts chapter 2, verse 10, specifies that there were indeed visitors from Rome in Jerusalem on that fateful day, and Peter couldn't have been more clear in his sermon when he said in Acts 2, 28, to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And so we believe that some people were there that day in Acts 2.10 from Rome who repented, went back and planted a church in Rome, and from there, some of these Christians had now migrated as far as Puteoli, which I told you is 150 miles from Rome. So even though Paul must have been eager to press on to actually get into the city, he was gracious to accept their invitation to stay with them for about a week. I mean, the fact that these fellow brothers asked him to stay, it would have been hard for Paul to say, no, I'm not interested in sharing the gospel with you as much as I am going to Rome. Likely, these were newer believers in the faith, and Paul could have done a lot to help give them solid Bible teaching, maybe to better establish their church, to show them a true shepherd's heart. Maybe the centurion that had been with Rome had to unload the ship and maybe was at work there in Puteoli for a week now that they finally landed there on the shore of Italy. Either way, we see here that, that God accomplished right there in Puteoli as these believers uh, enjoyed some meaningful fellowship together. And then we read in verses 15 and 16, it's time to greet the brothers from Rome. Time to greet the brothers from Rome, verses 15 and 16. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. So at this point, again, we see Paul migrating by land. And he's going a little bit closer, a little bit closer. And now he's at the Forum of Appius, which is about 43 miles from Rome. So about 100 miles in. Uh, they also came to three taverns. That was 10 miles closer to Rome. And needless to say, these brothers from the city of Rome were very eager to meet Paul. And so they had come out these 43 and then 33 miles to meet us. In fact, the, the, the phrase there, to meet us, at the end of verse 15, was used in Greek literature of an, of an entourage coming out of a city to meet some type of official coming into the city. And so they, they came out, and it's as if now they're going to escort Paul all the way in to the city of Rome. They're so eager to meet him. And at the end of verse 15, Paul was encouraged at the sight of these men who came to greet them. Remember, Paul was probably somewhat weary from his travels. He had not seen a lot of believers when he landed, like in Malta, even though some of them might have gotten saved while he's there. But just to see 
true brothers in some of these other cities and then coming out from Rome to meet him there at three taverns and at this other uh, city that was, uh, that was uh, there from the forum of Appius certainly encouraged uh, Paul's heart. In fact, that, that word encourage is the same word that's used to describe the disciples when they were on the Sea of Galilee and there was the storm and Jesus was walking by. They were terrified, but Jesus said to them, take courage. It is, not, it is I, do not be afraid. That's the same verb that we see where Paul said he was encouraged. He's just receiving immense encouragement from these brothers who came to him. You know, when we come and greet one another and fellowship together as believers of different cultures, of different backgrounds, we can take great courage. We can be greatly blessed. This, this somehow really lifted Paul's soul. He, he, he was excited and encouraged about these believers who met him, and then they proceeded on the Appian Way. This was known as the Queen of the Long Roads as it led into the imperial city of Rome. This is certainly a climax in the book where Paul is finally arriving, not just in Italy, but now to the city itself of Rome. Jesus, remember, had told Paul that he would testify in Rome. And so now this, this is fully becoming realized that he was going to be a witness there in the city of Rome. And Paul, Paul had not been formally uh, charged with some crime and we can only speculate what it was that Festus, back in Caesarea, actually wrote down in his letter to the emperor. And yet Paul wasn't a free man either. Rather than wait for trial in a prison like those um, suspected of a crime, he was allowed to find rented quarters and wait under house arrest with only one soldier at a time to guard him. While the text says there was one soldier, it's likely to suppose that there would not have been one soldier with him literally 24 hours a day for two years. So most of the commentators say that there was likely six soldiers on a four-hour shift in order to keep watch over Paul. He was still chained, even though he had some freedom there in a house, but he's a chained apostle, and certainly he was a great witness to each one of them. I'm sure that those guys probably got a little bit of tired of hearing Paul share Christ with them uh, throughout their four-hour shifts, but that's most likely uh, what, Paul, what Paul did. I mean, he could have thought about an escape, like uh, with just one guard at a time and with a, a lot of Christians there. Uh, some of the commentators again say, well, maybe he could have, uh, you know, mounted some type of escape, but that wasn't his goal, right? He, he wanted to share Christ with the emperor. He was never about running. He was about affording his appeal to the emperor. And remember, as long as he's captive, he has an audience with the court. But if he was a fugitive on the run, he would be arrested and potentially dealt with in a different way because then he would be guilty of, you know, escaping out of prison. Paul wanted, he wanted to share Christ with the emperor. So he was happy uh, probably about this setup. And so now that we've seen that Paul has finally reached Rome here in verses 11 through 16, let's dive into our second heading this morning. Number two, faithfully addressing the Jews with the gospel from the Old Testament. This is kind of what we're a little bit more accustomed to Paul doing throughout his missionary journeys in the second half of the book of Acts. And so here in verses 17 through 19, your next blank says a clarification of how Paul got there. He, he seems to want to explain to the Jews there in Rome exactly how it came to be that he's now brought in as a prisoner. And so in verses 17 through 19, it says after three days, so he's in the city, been there three days, and at this point he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. Now, this is common, right, for Paul. First, he wants to go to the Jews. If he went to the Gentiles first, 
it's likely the Jews would have not given him an audience. And so Paul, in each and every place he went, he starts with the Jews, and he wants to give them this explanation and, uh, about why he was confined to his apartment. And so he welcomed visitors, and his assistants ran some errands. He couldn't go to the synagogue, so he invited the Jewish elders to his home, and he probably had two main objectives. First, he wanted to maybe gauge their hostility in the events that had happened to see if they were going to be very, uh, very much against him. And then second, he wanted to preach to the Jews first before turning to the Gentiles in the sentiment of Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God and the salvation to the Jew first and then also to the Greek or to the Gentile, right? We know that Romans 1, 16 and 17 stress that emphasis. And so his address with the Jews there when they did come to his house, he just gives a brief summary starting in verse 17, uh, explaining some of the legal history behind why he had come to Rome and why he was forced to stand before the Gentiles for judgment. And he wanted them to know that it was the Jews from Jerusalem that had hated him, not the other way around. He, he didn't hate the Jews in Jerusalem. The Jews in Jerusalem hated him. I mean, Paul had done nothing immoral to earn their hostility, and his innocence had been affirmed by everyone in Judea except those temple leaders in Jerusalem. He'd have been, he'd been um, guiltless in front of everyone else. The centurion who arrested him, and then when he was in, Centur in Caesarea, there was Felix, Festus and Agrippa, they had all cleared his name. And so in verse 19, Paul made it abundantly clear that he had had to appeal to Caesar, even though there was no charge that was brought against him uh, that was valid, and Paul himself brought no charge against his own nation. And again, he's identifying with the Jews. He's making it clear that Paul was in support of the Jewish leaders, like uh, of old, particularly Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob. And Paul was for King David and King Solomon and King Hezekiah. And Paul believed in the prophets of Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel. Remember, Paul had been raised as a Pharisee and was from the tribe of Benjamin and was a Hebrew of Hebrews. And so Paul simply trying to find common ground with the fellow Jews who had not yet come to Christ there in Rome by reminding them, I love my heritage. I love my people. I, I'm, I'm one of you. And yet we also know that Paul's going to tell them about the Jewish story of redemption being fulfilled in the God-man, the Jewish Messiah, the person of Jesus Christ. That's where he's going, but he first wants to make sure he's establishing some camaraderie with his audience there, the Jews in Rome. And so then we see in verses 20 through 22, your next blank, there's an invitation to hear of the hope of Israel. And that's what he gives in verse 20 through 22. Remember, the Jewish leaders came out after three days to hear, and they, and they talk about uh, why he's arrested and while he's there. But then in verses 20 through 22, he says, For this reason, therefore, I have asked um, to see you, to speak with you, since it was because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. So now he's saying, Hey, I'm glad you guys came out. I wanted to talk with you about the hope of Israel. The hope of Israel is the reason I'm wearing this chain. And they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. So first things first, the Jews are saying, look, we don't, we don't have anything against you. We haven't heard any bad news about you. We haven't received any letters about you, but we desire to hear from you, verse 22, what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. And so they're saying, hey, we would like to hear a little bit about Christianity and this sect that you're kind of also telling us about. Again, Paul clearly intended to say something in verse 20 here that would garner their attention when he said, it is because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain, that, that would have been an unmistakable reference to some type of Hebrew messiah who promised to fulfill all the prophecies concerning Israel. 
Israel's hope and consolation would always come in a Messiah. That's why we sing about that at Christmas time. We know that's Israel's hope. And so when he said, I want to talk to you about Israel's hope, they would have known that he's talking about the hope of Israel being a reference to the Messiah. And Paul had done this uh, previously in many different occasions. Acts 23, verse 6, when he had been arrested in Jerusalem, he said, it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. Again, when Paul spoke before Felix in Caesarea in Acts 24, 15, he talks about having hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And then one more time before Agrippa in Acts 26, 6 and 7, Paul said, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our forefathers. And it is for this hope that I am accused by the Jews. Now, Paul is connecting the hope of Israel to the hope of the resurrection, which is in a person named Jesus Christ. And he's trying to help them see this connection. Our hope is not in our country, it's not in our heritage, and it's not in our past. Our hope is in our Messiah who has come, and it's this Messiah that I want to talk to you about. It's the hope of Israel. And so the hope of Israel was even more than just a general resurrection. It meant, again, the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies to Israel. All of the prophecies given to Israel could only come true in a Messiah and in the hope of Israel, which would be in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul firmly believed that Jesus is the Messiah of Israel who will return someday and establish himself as the King of Israel and the Lord of all nations. And so what's their response to Paul? Now tiptoeing into the message of Israel's true hope, their initial response was somewhat ambivalent. I mean, they said they had heard nothing about Paul's arrest and they would receive no such letters bearing accusations and that none of the brothers coming to Rome had reported or spoken evil about Paul. Uh, one reason for this may have been that Paul was on the last ship out of Caesarea and then the first ship arriving to Rome the next spring. So it may have been they just hadn't received news yet. Could also be because Emperor Claudius, the previous emperor before Nero, had expelled all the Jews from Rome 10 years earlier. And so there wasn't a lot of connection between the, the Jews in uh, Jerusalem and the Jews in Rome. And so they had not had a lot of communication. The only reports that they had received had been on the sect of Christianity. And that's what he's talking about there in verse 22 when he talks about, hey, we, we've heard nothing about you, but we do desire to hear from you what your views are regard to the sect, again, to Christianity. What's going on with Christianity? Because all we hear about that is negative. All we hear is negative things about this Christ and what the Christians are doing and they're ruining our Jewish culture. And so these reports have been overwhelmingly negative. And so on another note, diplomatically, these Jews there in Rome assured Paul of their desire to hear from him on what his views are on this new sect. And so cautiously, they acknowledged the reality of the situation was regard to that. And this moves us into verses 23 and 24, where we see your next blank, an explanation of the Old Testament pointing to Christ. And so when they had appointed a day, Paul said, hey, let's do it. You guys come back and let's have another day where we talk about it. And so when that day came, verse 23, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers from morning till evening. He expounded to them testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. So what do you think about that? Verses 23 and 24, this is what Paul's all about, right? And so consistent with their express willingness to hear more about Christianity from Paul, Paul gave them a full dose, right, on that appointed day. It says he started in the morning and he went until evening. Remember, Paul liked to preach and he could do it all day and he could do it all night. Remember the young guy, Eutychus, who fell off the window and dropped over dead? Paul was a preacher and sometimes in order to establish you know, rooted truth in the Bible, it takes a little time. It takes a little effort because we're not just telling a story 
And we're not just given illustrations, we're doing a deep dive, a study. That's what Paul's doing. That's why we have a conviction here at our church to do what we call expository preaching. We want to explain the text. And in order to adequately explain the text, it takes more than 10 or 15 minutes. I mean, that just kind of gets us in, right? And we got to expound the truth that's in there. And this is what Paul is doing as he goes back to what? He goes back to the Old Testament. The Old Testament's not useless. It's useful, The Old Testament is not just a book of stories, it's a book of God's truth. And so Paul wants to dig from the Old Testament and demonstrate how the Old Testament is pointing to the New Testament, which he's now living in, and it's pointing to the person in the work of Jesus Christ. And so this is what Paul wants to talk about. He wants to talk about the glory of God. And he wants to testify them by preaching the gospel, that God sovereignly calls helpless and hopeless sinners out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light, that believers are transplanted from the realm of Satan, who is the prince of the power of the air, into the kingdom of the grace and glory of God. Satan destroys, but God delivers. Satan holds captive, God sets free. Satan's plans lead to death, God's plans lead to life. This is part of what he's talking about when he's talking about the kingdom of God, what it means to be a Christian, a true believer. Being a, a kingdom, be, being part of the kingdom means that you're born again. It means that you are now in God's kingdom serving the king who is Jesus. This is what Paul would have been discussing, not just a, a national emphasis of a, of, a, of a ethnicity that will have some bright future just because they're Jewish. It's not what Paul's point is. He's like, no, you got to be in the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God goes beyond Jewish ethnicity, and it goes into anyone who will believe and be convinced in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, and the teaching of Jesus comes out of the Old Testament. That's, how, that, that, that's where the, the theme of redemption is rooted in the law of Moses and in the prophets. And Paul's desperately desiring to persuade them concerning Jesus. And he's doing so from, again, from the Old Testament. This is what Jesus did, right? Jesus taught in Matthew 7, 12, that true Christians would keep the golden rule, which comes out of the Old Testament. When Jesus said in Matthew 7, 12, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So Jesus is teaching a gospel that transforms and that helps you love your neighbor. And that teaching, he says, Jesus says, was rooted in the law and the prophets. Jesus also taught in Luke 16, 16. Jesus said, the law and the prophets were until John, since the good news of the kingdom is preached. And so he's saying, hey, the whole Old Testament, the law, the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch written by Moses and the prophets, everything else is to push us all the way up until Jesus arrives, comes all the way up until the good news of the gospel, which is preached in the four gospels. And so Paul preached in the same way. He did this in the synagogue at Pisidian Antioch, his first long sermon in Acts 13. Paul did the same thing uh, that he discusses in Romans 3, 21 and 22, where Paul says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And so he's saying, hey, it's, it, it starts with the law and the prophets, but it's so much more than that. It, it's, it, the law and the prophets is the first installment of the old covenant, but now we have a new installment of the new covenant, which is found specifically in Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God was never fully found in just the law itself because the law itself points to the fact that you and I can't keep it and we can't have righteousness imparted to us from the law. That righteousness is a gift of grace and that gift of grace comes not through the law or our obedience to the law. It comes through Christ and it's because of Christ that the righteousness of God is now imputed to our account as true blood-bought believers who would repent and believe. This is what Paul is talking about and unfortunately to the Jews this concept of the Messiah dying for their sins as an atonement and the teaching of justifications by faith and not by ethnicity or obedience 
and that entering the kingdom of God in this way by faith in Christ, it sounded strange to the Jews. They had not heard this emphasis of faith in a risen Savior. They had always just heard the emphasis, again, of the Old Testament and the Old Covenant, and somehow they had wavered from a salvation that would be based on the Lamb of God. And they retreated to a salvation that they thought was based on keeping the law of God. So you can either look to the Lamb of God by faith and be saved, or you can go back and look to the law of God and be condemned. And they thought atonement came from their own obedience. And they thought that somehow salvation was an award that they earned for their own legalistic efforts. And so the Jews in verse 24 says they're, they're divided in their responses to the gospel of grace through Christ. Some were convinced, and we would say, praise God. But those that were convinced were probably born again in that moment through the preaching of the gospel. And yet others refused. They, they disbelieved. This is not just like a neutral place. They rebuffed. They, they pushed back. They purposely say, we do not believe what you're saying. And as always, the word of God cuts like a knife. And we've seen this before in Paul's ministry throughout the book of Acts in Acts 14, 4, but the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. Acts 17, 4 and 5 says the same thing. Some became believers, some rejected. There, there are those who are chosen, uh, that are drawn to the message of the cross, and then those who choose their own self-styled religion who are really enamored with themselves. Those who are called are broken over their sin, ready to repent and thankful for the cross, but those who reject Christ prefer their own religion, their own traditions, their own beliefs, their own practices. And so we've got to ask ourselves, have we repented of our sin? Have we looked to Christ this morning and accepted the teachings of the New Testament or are we somehow holding on to our past or holding on to tradition or holding on to what we think might be right? So we've seen Paul finally arriving in Rome. We've seen Paul faithfully preaching the gospel. And then number three, this morning, we see fearlessly, Paul's fearlessly announcing a judgment passage to the people. This is kind of sad, but this is where it ends here in verses 25 through 27 at least, the meaning of the passage of Isaiah. This point, when some believe but others disbelieve, verse 25 says, and disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul and made one statement. After Paul had made one statement, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through the Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive, for this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them." Again, the Jews in Rome who refused to believe in the gospel of Christ were unfortunately continuing in their nation's sad history of rejecting God's messengers. And several times in the Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, God lamented the fact that they had rebelled. In fact, in Jeremiah 7, 25 and 26, God says to the wayward, rebellious Israel, he says, from the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. So he's like, ever since you've been delivered from Egypt, I've sent my prophets to you. And yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. This is the history of Israel. They continue to reject God's prophets. And so rejecting God's prophets in the Old Testament was a disaster for Israel. And like the, the wicked vine growers in Jesus's parable, their ultimate rejection of God came when they killed his son. And so unable to agree with one another, the Jewish leaders began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word of warning from the Holy Spirit, who rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet initially. But this reference, by the way, of the Holy Spirit speaking through Isaiah is also a concise example of the divine inspiration of Scripture. 
2 Peter 1.21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men who spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Essentially, Paul's saying it was the Holy Spirit who wrote Isaiah. It's inspired by God, just like we know from 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God. And so we know it was the Holy Spirit who spoke through Isaiah to address that audience at that time. But in the same way, the Holy Spirit is now speaking through Paul as he quotes Isaiah 6, 9 through 10, and he applies that judgment to this present rebellious generation. The same, and I'm talking about obviously verse 26 and 27, which is a quote from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. And this same passage was quoted by Jesus as well as a rebuke of Israel's hardened rejection of the gospel. And Jesus quotes that same passage in Matthew 13, 14 through 15, and again in John chapter 12, verses 39 through, 30, 39 through 40. And so what we're saying is that Israel's willful act of rejection was sovereignly confirmed by God because of their constant and continual unbelief. And because of this hard heart, constant rejection, and willful disobedience, Israel became unable to believe. It was their own unbelief that was the cause of their own spiritual blindness. Therefore, God also obscures the truth from unbelievers. And because of their unbelief, they will hear but not understand. They will see but not perceive. Because their hearts have grown dull, they have ears that cannot hear. They have eyes that have been closed. God is saying, if they would turn, I would heal them, but they will not. They have rejected the prophets, they had rejected the apostles, and they had rejected Christ. They had calloused hearts, deafened ears, and spiritually blinded eyes. R.C. Sproul writes on this passage, quote, Some say that it doesn't seem fair. Why would God close ears and shut eyes and then punish for not hearing and seeing? He does so, Sproul writes, because the closing of the ears and the eyes is God's judgment upon people who, in the first place, did not want to hear and did not want to see. That is the way that he operates. In his judgment, he said in Revelation twenty-two eleven, let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. So, if you hear the word of God again and again, and it continues to fall upon a stony, recalitrant heart, God may give you over to that heart forever. That is the warning that Paul gave to these people. So he's saying, if you've rejected, and you rejected, and you rejected, then this passage is now true of you, saying that you're not rejecting, therefore you can't hear. You're not turning, therefore you won't see. The truth is the hearing of the word of God always has an effect on people. But the same sun that melts the ice also hardens the clay. Either people are melted and moved by the gospel when they hear the word preached or they reject Jesus and become increasingly hard-hearted towards him as a result. No one can listen to the gospel and remain neutral to it. That's why we must warn unbelievers that they must respond positively to God's word or the Lord may give them over to what they want, eternal separation from him and from his grace. And this brings us to verse 28, the shifting of the focus to the Gentiles because of their rejection. Verse 28, therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. So here at the end of the book, we see for the final time that after the gospel was rejected by the Jews, the gospel focus was now turned toward the Gentiles. From Jerusalem to Rome, most Jews rejected it. In city after city, the message was then directed to the non-Jews. Now, in the capital of Rome, 
The, the world, uh, the same phenomenon had occurred. And so it will be to, uh, to, until the fullness of the Gentiles comes to faith according to Romans 11. In fact, turn with me, if you will, to Romans 11, because this is the question that we're asking. Like, man, at the end of Jesus' ministry, he basically turns from the Jews to the Gentiles. At the end of Paul's ministry, he's basically turning from the Jews to the Gentiles. So uh, the question that is so often asked is, well, is Israel's rejection final? And Paul answered that question in Romans chapter 11. Look at verses 1 through 2. I asked then, has God rejected his people? Because he made a lot of promises to ethnic Israel in the Old Testament. So the question is, because they rejected him, does that mean that God, uh, you know, has God rejected his people? And the answer he gives in the middle of verse 1 is, by no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now skip down to verse 23, Acts 11, excuse me, Romans 11, 23. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. Now get this, we're just saying that there's Israel, it became like a stump. The church was grafted into Israel, that's the Gentile church, and then God's saying here at the end, he's going to graft Israel, believing Israel, back into that because there's a promise that he made and it will take place, look at verses 25 and 26 of Romans 11, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. It's a partial hardening because there's always a remnant right, of true believers. They were Israelites who are completed Jews. So there's a partial hardening has come to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So God's focusing his program now on the Gentiles or on the church. And when he's done focusing on them as a primary emphasis, verse 26 says, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. He's going to come back to save every Israelite who repents and believes in the gospel and finally acknowledges that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. And so in these verses, Paul's making it clear that Israel's rejection will not cancel God's promises to save a remnant. The day of Israel's faith in Jesus Christ is yet to come. And if you'll look, you'll see that there is no verse 29 back in Acts 28. There's actually not an Acts chapter 29, but neither is there an Acts verse 29 in chapter 28. And if you look at your marker there, the ESV says, some manuscripts add verse 29, and when he had said these words, the Jews departed, having much dispute among themselves. This brings us to verses 30 and 31. Your last blank, the ending narrative of the book of Acts. So how does it all end? He lived there two whole years in his own expense, and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So for two full years, Paul remained a prisoner in his own rented quarters there in Rome. He had the freedom to welcome all who came to him, and uh, presumably, you know, he, he was not free to leave the quarters, but the conditions of his imprisonment did not keep him from proclaiming the kingdom of God fearlessly. Paul faithfully carried out the teaching of Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Chains cannot chain the gospel, right? He continues to do his work. In fact, according to Philippians 1, 13 and Philippians 4, 22, Paul was aided by some of his dear fellow workers during this time. Paul also wrote the four prison epistles during this two-year imprisonment. He wrote Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and Philemon. Colossians chapter 4 verses 10 through 12 names several of his companions who attended him during this two-year stint. There was Aristarchus and Mark who was the cousin of Barnabas and there was, there was uh, Justice and Epaphras. And so we know according to Philemon that Onesimus was saved during this time. Now, one common question that's also raised is what exactly happened after the two years of captivity? Because, you know, the, the book doesn't stop with 
explaining some questions we still have. And so that question is, well, what happened after that two-year captivity? Well, perhaps no charges were filed in Rome and Paul was most likely released. The Jews would know that they had no case against Paul outside of Judea, and so they would be reluctant to argue their case there in Rome. According to Romans 15, 28, uh, 22 through 28, Paul probably returned to the provinces of Macedonia, Achaia, and Asia, and then turned west to Spain according to his original plans. Then he ministered once more in the Aegean area where he was taken prisoner the second time and returned back to Rome. We know from church history that in 65 AD, the two main characters of the book of Acts, do you know who they are, the two main characters of the book of Acts? Peter, Acts is 1 through 12. You have forgotten about him, haven't you? And then Paul, verses or chapters 13 through 28, the two main characters in 65 AD, according to church history, were both martyred. Under the cruelty of Nero, they died in different ways. Peter was crucified according to the tradition. He asked to be crucified upside down because he did not feel worthy to die in exactly the same manner as his Savior had died. Paul, unlike Peter, was a Roman citizen And Roman citizens convicted of capital crimes were not executed by crucifixion. They were beheaded with the sword. And so tradition holds that Paul, once again a prisoner in Rome in his second imprisonment, was taken out of jail and publicly beheaded by an executioner. What went on in the few days and weeks before Paul's last moments on earth are not told to us in the book of Acts, which ends as we see here, with the apostles free and the gospel continuing to spread throughout the known world. And so it was that the kingdom message under God's sovereign control went from Jew to Gentile and from Jerusalem to Rome. Indeed, the Lord delivered Paul safely to Rome in the time that he welcomed this war-torn apostle to his heavenly home. Until we too See, King Jesus, let us follow Paul's model of pouring ourselves out in the service of the kingdom. Keep fighting. Keep running the race. And when you see Jesus Christ with your own eyes, you won't regret having served him faithfully with your dying breath. We, as blood-bought Christians, will be in the presence of the glorified Christ forever. We'll be there with the saints from every tribe and tongue, including those like Peter and Paul who were slain for the sake of the name of Christ. And there we will join a multitude of the redeemed in singing praises to the one who is worthy of all of our adoration. And the mission of Acts is to be continued until Jesus, the source of life, concludes it. And that's why you have ministries today like Acts 29 that emphasize the importance of Christians receiving power from the Holy Spirit to be Christ's witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Music lovers around the world are familiar with the famous Unfinished Symphony. Symphony number eight in B minor composed by Franz Schubert. The abrupt ending of this piece of music has made it world famous. And Luke also has given us an unfinished story. But from all evidence, that is precisely what he intended. In his typical style, much in the way he ended the Gospel of Luke, Luke emphasizes the positive and healthy forward movement of the Gospel and the message of the kingdom of God. Rome may bind the preacher, but the message goes on. And that is the precise message of Acts. We may only have 28 chapters here, but one could argue that each year in the life of the church, another chapter is added. As we look at the take-home for this morning, how did Paul's arrival to Rome demonstrate God's faithfulness and God's plan? How does this encourage you in your own life? He finally got there, didn't he? And he's able to do exactly what God called him to do. How does that encourage you today? Second, what can we learn from Paul's constant use of the law and prophets in order to preach the gospel? So many today, again, are trying to unhitch 
the New Testament from the Old Testament, and yet we see through the preaching of Christ and the apostles, there's the constant use of the law and the prophets to point to the gospel. And then third, how does the ongoing narrative of the book of Acts encourage you to preach the gospel with boldness and resolve? Paul never stopped, neither should we, because we are now just at the end of the beginning. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to see a colorful ending in some ways of Paul arriving in Rome, encouraged along the way with an entourage of brothers who came to greet him, enabled there in the city of Rome to invite Jewish leaders to his house, capable to preach from morning till night from the law and the prophets about the hope of Israel found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And thank you that even though we know that he eventually was beheaded here at the end of this book, we see that he was able to continue to boldly preach and that his message was unhindered. So I pray, God, that we would continue in that same way, that we would be bold to preach the gospel and that our message would be unhindered. That no matter what our state may say, no matter what our nation may say, no matter what our neighbors or our friends tell us, we want to be relentless in our pursuit of opportunities to preach and herald the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ as the only hope and consolation, not only of Israel, but of any person who's ever lived. And thank you that this is just the end of the beginning. This day is the beginning of the rest of our life. And while we've ended the book of Acts, we're beginning to continue to live each and every day in your strength and for your glory as we want to be faithful in our testimony, unashamed of the gospel of Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.